This is Religion Unplugged, an interview series about the impact of religion in public life around the world. Today is December 18th, 2019. A whistleblower complaint to the IRS alleges the Mormon Church has amassed a secretive $100 billion investment fund and has misled church members about how tithe money is used with that fund. On Monday night, we broke a story about this at religionunplugged.com after a month-long investigation into claims the whistleblower made to the IRS. Samuel D. Brunson, a law professor at Loyola University in Chicago and an expert on religion and tax law, discusses the concerns about his church. I reached out to Sam Brunson yesterday because we were working on a story at Religion Unplugged for the last month uh, about a whistleblower and an allegation, allegations in the whistleblower complaint that came our direction. And um, uh, just to introduce Sam and why I'm reaching out to, to you today, uh, you're a law professor. Tell us a bit about your uh, work as a lawyer, law professor, and your area of research that led me to call you. Right. So I'm a law professor at Loyola University, Chicago. And here I teach primarily tax law. Um, my research recently has focused on the taxation of tax-exempt organizations, and especially of religious organizations. Um, right. So I came across your work as I was reporting the story that we broke last night on Religion Unplugged, and we broke it simultaneously uh, as the Washington Post broke that story as well. And uh, it's on page one of the Washington Post today. Right. And, you know, basically the, the uh, details in the story... Uh, is that there is a, a fund or set of funds that the whistleblower is alleging uh, the Mormon church uh, registered this investment firm as a 509A3 supporting organization to the church, and that some tithes from the Mormon church members, uh, which are considerable, when you have 12 million members uh, and billions of dollars of tithe revenue, that some of those tithe, that tithe money went to this supporting organization, which in invested. And in the last 22 years, the whistleblower alleges the fund grew from $10 billion to $100 billion and hasn't been used too much. Uh, there are some other allegations in the story, but I'm curious, Sam, about your, um, uh, you know, your initial take on the story at the, in the Washington Post and on our site uh, and the, this, uh, the allegations from the whistleblower around you know that a, that a 509a3 or supporting organization shouldn't be used in this manner. Do you have any sense about that? So um, it, it's interesting. It seems like a strange setup. In the first instance, I would say um, it's un it's unsurprising that a tax exempt organization would have some amount of money and would have investments. They they do that. Um, they can do it in-house, like the Mormon church could just have as, as employees a handful of investment managers and do it in-house. If they did that, it would be, from a tax perspective, completely uncontroversial. Similarly, if they went to an ordinary for-profit um, investment advisor hedge fund and invested the money there, again, it would be uncontroversial. They, they could do that. They wouldn't have to get the money sent back to them. So the weird thing here, as you point out, 
is that it's a nonprofit, a supporting organization or an integrated auxiliary that is the, um, that, that is the investment fund. So that, and, and the problem with that, and the weird thing about that is that generally speaking to be tax exempt, you have to primarily pursue some particular tax exempt purpose. So a church does religious purposes. That's one of the things that's listed in 501c3 as a permissible exempt purpose. My employer is a university. Education is another um, acceptable tax exempt purpose. Um, there are a handful of others, but tax exempt purposes don't include um, investing. So like you said, it, to qualify as exempt, it has to do something different than just be an investment fund. Um, and right. as a supporting organization or as an integrated auxiliary, the, the IRS has said that um, an organization like that can also be a tax exempt purpose if it engages in a business, but it essentially gives money to a tax exempt organization to pursue its tax exempt mission. And right. it's created a standard that it calls the commensurate in scope standard, which is the amount that it gives to the tax exempt organization has to be commensurate in scope with its financial standing. Hmm. Now this is, go ahead. Sorry. This is fascinating oh, to me. Yeah. So anyway, the problem with that standard is the IRS has never really clarified what commensurate in scope means. Right. Um, they also haven't qualified who it applies to, but for the first part on what it means, um, I mean, we don't know if it means that this type of supporting organization needs to give 50% of its income, 20%, 10%, 5%, 70%. What we do know, or I guess we don't even know this, but it would make sense that 0% is not commensurate in scope. Mm -hmm. So if the organization has invested this money, has kept this money, has grown this money, and has never given any of it back either to the Mormon church or to any other charitable organization, that probably doesn't, I mean, that probably, I'm an attorney, I can never say anything definitely, but that yeah, probably yeah, yeah. doesn't meet the commensurate in scope requirement. Okay. Well, and your your comments are raising, I think, another point, which is um, uh, about gray areas, because it's hard to evaluate there there are uh, there are several things we don't yet know despite uh, i've been working on this for a month and i have a lots of some of the whistleblower documents are now public uh on scribd and on videos and i have religion unplugged we have other documents that were submitted to the irs and we in our story decided to focus on the things that we could verify or that were concrete and uh to us um but organizations registered in this way, uh, the disclosure, the financial disclosure issues, um, both to the IRS and to the public or members of a religious organization, as I was looking into that, I came across uh, a paper that you had written uh, in recent years at the a Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, yeah. and you walked through some of the present, past, and future of LDS financial transparency um, and I quote that some of that paper in our story, um, and I'm just curious now, maybe you just want to talk a bit about uh, the, what you went through that in that piece and, and how it relates to this story out today about the uh, 
LDS church? Right. So historically, I mean, up until say the 1890s, the Mormon church didn't have, well, it had off and on tremendous amount of assets, but in the 19th century, ownership, capitalism were kind of relatively new and they did weird things. Come the 20th century, the church started to discuss its finances with members in public. So the Mormon church twice a year holds what they call a general conference, which is essentially, I mean, it's like old Methodist conferences of the 19th century that has transformed into basically a worldwide meeting. So early on, there was some disclosure. So someone, the speaker, the church president, or someone high up in the hierarchy would say, hey, over the course of the last year, or over the course of the last 10 years in one instance, we've raised this much money in tithing. We own these many cows, this much land, this much information. We've used that money to support this many missionaries and to build this many buildings and stuff like that. And it would lay out um, the, the various finances, the intakes and the outputs of money. And those were more and less specific over time. It, it wasn't really a pattern. There, there wasn't a strong pattern to it. It's not like every year they gave the exact same format, the exact same information. And it may well not have been a comprehensive look at the finances, but it was at least a look at the finances. It was a look at how much the church had brought in, how much it had gotten rid of. That went down during some periods. And in the 1950s, there was a church leader who was pretty specific about providing a lot of detail. And the detail he provided tended to run four to six printed pages. Um, uh -huh. But then when he was no longer part of the top of the hierarchy, suddenly in 1959, the Mormon church stopped talking about its finances. It stopped publicizing the finances. Uh -huh. It never said why it did that. Most people believe that it did it because it turns out that it had been running a deficit that it and that it it was in debt and the mm -hmm. church is gun shy about debt for normal reasons but also for historical reasons um they, there have been some bad situations it had with debt so suddenly 1959 the church stopped making those disclosures today instead of that it still makes a financial disclosure but the financial disclosure is essentially done by an in-house accountant who says we've audited the books and everything's in order. Um, okay. And, and, you and know, that person reads one statement every April, you said. Yeah. Yes. Right? And that statement, statement is, I don't know if it's word for word the same, but it's virtually the same every year. Uh -huh. And that statement, I, I tend to think accountants are good. This guy's in-house but presumably he's right, but that doesn't give us any information. It just tells us that the church is in compliance with best practices gap accounting. Right. Why this is interesting and to the story of today, the big story in front page of Washington Post and on the front of Religion Unplugged, um, is, is, is around the tithing issue. I mean, so all a lot of religions want donations from their members, and that's part of the practice of religion is, right. you know, uh, people give tithes or 10% you know, of their income. And for the, Morm the Mormon or the uh, Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Latter Saints, it's, it's a particular 
practice around tithing that I want you to describe in a minute. But I also want to make something clear here in the conversation that, like, Religion Unplugged and myself are not anti-religious or anti-Mormon. We, uh, in fact, uh, we understand very well that the uh, 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 the Mormon Church has and people have experienced ter- terrible persecution in the history during the United of the United States. And so, I just want to make that clear. And uh, you know, Religion Unplugged, one of our our uh, beliefs is that press freedom and religious freedom are two important values in the First Amendment and in general, and and for the good good of society. So, I just want to emphasize that over and over uh, in this conversation and any conversations that we have on the, on these topics. Um, but back to this issue of tithing, could you explain to us how uh, the the LDS Church approaches tithing differently, maybe than other uh, 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 denominations of? So, Christendom or American religions? For, for the LDS Church, tithing is, it has changed over time. In its current iteration, it's a payment of 10% of a member's income. The church is actually not, has not spent any time and has actually refused to define what they mean by income. Um, so, which you know, 10% before we had a broad income tax and like payment that wasn't just cash, but was also health insurance, 10% of income was relatively easy. If you grow 10 years of corn, one year of corn is 10%. So today there is an open question about 10% of what? Is it gross income? Is it income after taxes? Is it income after taxes adding back health benefits? Most people don't, most Mormons that I know don't engage it at that level. They just say 10% of income because honestly, most people probably sensibly don't think carefully about the definition of income. Most people who aren't me have better things to think about in their lives. Right. Um, Well, and do, how do, uh, are, is the LDS church more stringent on how it uh, requires tithes, uh, and how, how you know in terms of this. I've heard about the temple recommend, right? Uh, and and what that brings. What does what does that mean? So to hold a temple recommend, which is basically permission to go into the temples. So the Mormon Church has normal meeting houses. Anyone's welcome. Anyone can come in for meetings. And temples, which are limited to certain members who who do certain things. One of the things required to go to a temple is to be what the church calls a full tithe payer. And full tithe payer means essentially you pay 10% of your income in tithing. But even there, there's significant ambiguity. It, essentially, it turns out that the church doesn't have the ability to audit its members. So a full tithe payer is a self-reported thing. Like, I, okay. I mean, the church, I, I get paid by... Loyola University Chicago, which is a Jesuit university. The church mm-hmm. doesn't see my pay stubs. I can't, you know, they can ask and I can say no. So essentially, they they take my word that I pay a full tithe. Okay. And yeah, and just, uh, I saw in your bio that you went to Brigham Young University. I did. I'm course. a practicing member of the Mormon church. Okay. I was curious. Yeah. We're, so that, I think that helps us know that you know what you're talking about too. <laughs> uh, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um. So then, you know, back to this story, you know, one of the issues raised is if tithe money is flowing into Ensign Peak Advisors, the name of this fund, <coughs> via the Office of the President of the Mormon Church, uh, uh, 
there was two reported uses of the fund. One was to pay for $1.4 billion, the whistleblower alleges, and I've seen slides and have evidence to suggest it could be or is accurate, $1.4 billion from this fund went to help the City Creek Mall development project in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, that mall was competing with other retailers, a project called Gateway in uh, downtown Salt Lake City. And there were public statements by leaders of the LDS church that no tithe money was used in uh, uh, you know, building of that mall in several newspapers like both Salt Lake Tribune, Deseret News, and others. Is that concerning? Uh, one could say, well, maybe money is fungible, and was it tithe money or, or, or investment money? But does that part of the story concern you as a member of the LDS Church? So I love that you beat me to the money is fungible thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. For me, I tend to be less concerned about the City Creek thing, about things like that. I understand what people's concern is. I, I'm not convinced that there is a problem with this. There may be, there may be a reason that it shouldn't have been done, but the church, the investment fund can certainly invest more money into an investment, invest more money into a project. Um, and I saw in the post reporting that the whistleblower alleges that it wasn't listed as a loan or as an investment, I think, if I'm not wrong about that. And honestly, I don't know what that means. If they put money in and they're not getting it paid back, then it's an additional capital call. It's an additional investment. Should the church have invested in a shopping mall? I personally tend to be anti-mall, but I live in a big city, as do you, where malls are maybe not so cool. Right. Um, <laughs> So I, I don't love it as an investment strategy, but the fact that they're investing in a for-profit endeavor doesn't strike me as wrong. Right. Okay. Uh, interesting. So I know you got to go fairly soon, and I wanted to ask, you know, on the, on the top of your paper uh, that I referred to, it says, sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants, electric light, the most efficient policeman. And um, I'm curious about your take on financial disclosure or transparency for uh, the religion in this story, LDS religion, but also other other religions in America. Uh, as an expert and a lawyer on the topic, uh, curious to hear your take on that and if this story uh, gets to that in some way. Right. I, I don't think that there's a compelling reason why churches and other religious organizations shouldn't have to disclose, file the IRS Form 990, unlike all other tax-exempt organizations. I, I can understand some people have made the argument that doing this would be oppressive for small churches without a lot of assets and who may not have the ability to hire someone. But frankly, that's true for any small tax-exempt organization. And in fact, tax-exempt organizations, I forget the exact numbers, but below a certain level of revenue and assets, they file a very, very simple version of the Form 990. Um, so I think that the arguments that small churches won't be able to do it kind of misses the point because small churches have to do something less. I don't know. I mean, I don't think most people are going to be reading their church form 990 for pleasure reading and for fun. Um, 
I don't think most people understandably would really understand what it has. People have higher priorities than figuring out how to read obscure IRS documents. But I think that there is value. Many people, myself included, donate money to religions and to the other organizations. And even if I don't look at the Form 990 for, say, the Harris Theater, a dance and music theater that's a nonprofit here in Chicago, the fact that I could and the fact that there are probably eyes on it helps me be comfortable that they're probably doing good things with the money. Yeah. And did you look at the 990Ts that um, uh, Ensign Peak Advisors has filed? Because it was also puzzling uh, <clears throat> some of the both the post story and my story on religion unplugged note uh, that it was interesting. They list the book value as for several years, it was at 1 million. And then at one point they said over 1 million book value. And then in 2017 stopped putting a book value. Um, but there were other indicators uh, that I had showing that it was uh, that same year worth in the billions. Um, so I'm kind of, pu- I think some of us are puzzled the 990T didn't seem like a, either it was not filled out properly or it, it was filled out properly and it's not a great representation perhaps of the size and scope of the organization if the whistleblower is correct. So that that is a real problem. The 990 doesn't give us all the information you could possibly need about an organization. Um, I haven't looked at the 990Ts now that you mentioned them. I have my next project to do. Yeah. Um, but you know, keeping it at book value would make sense that they stay roughly the same because the book value is essentially not the fair market value, not the current value, but the value, the amount that you paid for them. Okay. I don't know why it would drop off. I don't know if the filing requirements changed or they got lazy or they got a new accountant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, last question, because I know you got to go soon. So I saw you quoted somewhere uh, talking about, uh, someone was trying to write about the Catholic Church and the, you know, uh, assets of the Catholic Church a few years ago, and, and you were quoted saying something about how the UK and another country have do have different disclosure requirements. And I wondered if you could kind of uh, explain that again. Other how the American disclosure requirements for religious organizations compared to other countries, and related to that, um, uh, what do you think would be a, a better model, uh, or the IRS might want to think about? Uh, uh, doing in a way that couldn't harm religion or religious freedom, but might improve a visibility, if there's any other thoughts on that. So um, I know um, the UK and Canada require all nonprofits to provide financial disclosures. They're slightly different. The UK version has charts and is a lot easier on your eyes, honestly, than the US version. And those two countries don't have exemptions for religious organizations. So for instance, there is a Mormon church kind of subsidiary uh, in the United Kingdom, and it files a disclosure for its finances, basically the money that it raises in the United Kingdom, plus money contributed by the central church, minus money that it contributes back. Canada has roughly the same thing. So those um, can give us a picture of various church finances, The Mormon church is kind of unique in this, in that it's all centralized. The Catholic church, for instance, like every diocese is a separately incorporated organization that owns its own property. So the Vatican 
maybe over everything, but the Vatican doesn't own the property owned by the Archdiocese of Chicago. Um, in the Mormon church, the central church owns all of the church property. Right. Okay. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Any final thoughts before you have to run? Um, no, it's an interesting story. I think it raises really interesting questions. The tax questions highlight the ambiguity and my students always come into tax law thinking finally they're going to get something that's just black and white easy. And it's nice to illustrate that even we have a lot of ambiguity in the tax law. And I think it illustrates a certain amount of discomfort that we have with the idea of religion and money. And it's yeah. not a discomfort that we necessarily need to get over, but it's a discomfort that we need to confront in a way that, that you guys are doing a great job of raising these issues but that Americans in general aren't super comfortable talking about religion or about money, much less the two together. And I think right. that we lose out when we don't combine those things. I agree with you. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Professor Brunson. Great to talk with you today. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freebie. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged team member Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.